Hi, everyone, and welcome to the premiere episode of the From the Hack podcast for the 2017-2018 curling season. From the Hack will continue to offer the type of interviews and event coverage that has been enjoyed by curlers and curling fans alike since our launch in September of 2015. This season, we are launching a new feature called Fresh Pebble that will help us connect with curling fans from around the world while sharing curling news and developments from Canada, the United States, Europe, and Pacific Asia. From the Hack is also proud to announce that we are producing three exclusive series that will be posted on our website throughout this season. During this podcast, you will hear previews of Behind the Hack with Shell Bernard, Next Steps with Kristen Streifel, and The Business of Curling. Also on this week's podcast, we discuss a busy off-season with Al Cameron of Curling Canada. We discuss the merger of the Curling Champions Tour and the World Curling Tour with Jerry Gertz. And we preview the 2017-2018 season with Show Bernard of TSN and Mike Harris of Sportsnet as the two Olympic medalists help prepare us for this Olympic season. But first, Northern Ontario musician and Friday night mixed curler extraordinaire Carl Bisson plays us into this week's podcast. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock, and as mentioned in our intro, Fresh Pebble is a new weekly feature that will focus on the major curling headlines, results, and announcements each week of the 2017-2018 curling season. An international summary will be provided during the weekly From the Hack podcast, and individual installments for each of Canada, the United States, Europe, and the Pacific Asia regions will be posted on the From the Hack website and our Facebook page. Here is the Fresh Pebble for week three of the 2017-18 season, including the major headlines from this past summer. In the United States, this year's Curling Night in America event will be taped from August 26th to 28th at the Baxter Arena in Omaha, Nebraska. The United States will be represented by Team McCormick in men's competition, Team Sinclair in women's competition, while Becca and Matt Hamilton will play mixed doubles. The Americans will be competing against teams from Scotland, China, and Japan. In Europe, a number of European countries having qualified for the 2018 Winter Olympics have named their representatives for Pyeongchang. This includes Great Britain, which will be represented by Eve Muirhead's team and Kyle Smith's team. Sweden will be represented by Team Adin in the men's event and Team Hasselborg in the women's event, while Russia will be represented by Team Sidorova in the women's event. In Pacific Asia... Earlier this summer, the World Curling Federation announced that the 2017 Pacific Asia Championships will be hosted at the Arena Ice Arena in Arena, Australia from November 2nd through November 9th on the central coast of New South Wales. It will be the first time in 21 years that Australia hosts the Pacific Asia Championships following in the footsteps of Adelaide in 1993 and Sydney in 1996. In a special feature for the first podcast of the season, Al Cameron, the Director of Communications and Media Relations at Curling Canada, joined us to discuss some of the major announcements by Curling Canada during this offseason. Al, one of the big stories during the offseason was Curling Canada deciding how it would allocate the 16th and final spots at the 2018 Briar and Scotties. A play-in game has been added that will see the top two teams in the CTRS rankings not otherwise qualified involved in a play-in game to decide that 16th spot and ensure two balanced pools. Can you share the process that led to that decision? Well, that was the main thing, obviously, Frank, was to make sure that you got two pools of eight 
uh, taking into account that you want all 14 member associations involved, that you want Team Canada involved, 15 isn't a, a real good number. And you couldn't do a straight-up round-robin because there's just not enough days if you want to keep it to that nine-day format, which uh, is almost a requirement just because it takes so much, so much time out of uh, the player's uh, work schedule. So uh, the best uh, solution that we could come up with in consultation with uh, all of our partners, including the players, including uh, TSA, including sponsors, was the uh, the 16 team format. Now, then it became, well, who's going to be that 16th team? And uh, I got to give credit where it's due. Mike McEwen was the first person who came up with the idea of having this play in game, um, and it's just going to add uh, just a, a great atmosphere on that Friday night. Uh, and, and you know, in talking to the players, I don't think there's anyone who would uh, who would say they wouldn't want to play in that game if if there's another way in after losing a, in a provincial championship. So yeah, it's going to be a very exciting Friday night at the uh, Tim Hortons Briar and the Scotties Tournament of Hearts. Two East Coast communities made noise during the offseason by being named hosts of major events. Let's start with St. Andrews, New Brunswick, which was selected to host the Canadian Under-18 Championships in 2018, a championship that was held for the first time last season. Well, you know, having an Under-18 National Championship has been on uh, Curling Canada's radar for a number of years now. It's kind of was a hole in the, uh, in the development uh, plan for young athletes, the long-term athletic development and uh, and you know finally getting the chance to do that uh, through the support of the Curling Canada Foundation, uh, it was a great success last year in Moncton or last season in Moncton. Uh, uh, the players loved it. The the community responded, and the curling was just at, at a level that uh, made us very excited about the future of Canadian curling. Put it that way. So uh, it, it was you know there was a lot of people who wanted to take a crack at hosting this again in in 2018 and and the people in St. Andrews put together a terrific bid and we expect another great show uh, on and off the ice right Uh, St. Andrews has a great facility and they're going to be treated just to amazing curling because our young athletes uh, are just really turning it up in terms of their preparation on and off the ice and we're seeing that pay off with the great results at the national and international level. Also this summer, the World Curling Federation announced that the 2019 World Junior Curling Championships will be held in Liverpool, Nova Scotia. It will be the first time that Canada has hosted a World Junior since 2009, which is somewhat surprising considering the fact that Canada hosts a men's and women's world championship every other year. Has it simply been a case of the World Curling Federation wanting to spread the event into different corners of the curling world, or is there a reason why Canada has not hosted a World Junior as often as we might expect given the popularity of junior curling in the country? We host every year, as a matter of fact, right? We host the men's one year, the women's next year. So there's always going to be a world men's or women's championship in Calgary every year. As far as the world juniors go, yeah, it was kind of a world curling federation thing that they could take it to, uh, let's say, non-traditional markets. Uh, and that, uh, you know, pays off with development, right? Uh, and awareness in, in some countries that typically don't host big-time curling events. Uh, the people in Liverpool uh, decided that they would want to make this bid, and they asked us uh, if we would endorse it, and we certainly did. Uh, the uh, The Canadian Junior Championships were in Liverpool in 2014, and it was a, a wonderfully successful event. So I, I know the people in Liverpool are just going to do a terrific job just based on past history. Um, one of the issues, of course, is that it uh, there's just not a lot of room on the calendar in Canada uh, that time of year and I can tell you that uh, but that event will be going head to head with the Scotty's Tournament of Hearts uh, in terms of the same calendar week so that's a uh, you know something to be aware of uh, 
it's it's a world curling federation event they will be operating it in liverpool obviously our attention is going to have to be mostly on the scotties uh when we get around to announcing a location for that but uh, that's uh, a tip a big reason why the world juniors hasn't been in canada for a long time because it typically either goes uh briar week or scotties week at its most recent AGM, Curling Canada made an announcement with regards to use of helmets at curling clubs in the country. Can you clarify what was decided at the AGM and whether it can be mandated across the country or is simply a suggestion with the final decision being made at the club level? Well, it's it's certainly not mandated. It's uh, and, and all it was was taking another step towards a, a recommendation policy, right? Uh, obviously, there's a lot of ducks in a row that have to be taken care of before we get anywhere close to that. But it's certainly moving closer and closer. But uh, the role of Curling Canada in this is only that we can strongly recommend. Um, we can't tell private curling centers what they do with their rules. And and it's up to them, in fact, what they want to do with the sport of curling. They could use the Seven Rock Free Guard Zone rule. We can't tell them not to. Uh, our rules only apply to events that we run. Uh, so, you know, there will never be a time where we say it's a requirement to wear helmets at curling rinks. Uh, that's just not our mandate, and it's, it's, uh, it, it just wouldn't happen. Uh, you know, conceivably, and I don't foresee a date that this would ever happen, we could say you have to wear helmets at a, a Curling Canada Championship. Don't count on that happening, obviously, but uh, that's all we can do. So, But what we can do is strongly recommend and then offer a set of guidelines, both in terms of how they're utilized, what sorts of helmets are recommended, and return to play uh, protocol as well. So, uh, all, all what happened at the at the uh, at our annual meetings was that we moved a step closer to formal recommendations, and uh, that's as far as it would go from a curling Canada perspective. The big story heading into the 2017-18 season is obviously the Olympic trials, and in the case of the men's and women's events, the pre-trials. Over the summer, curling Canada finalized the field for the pre-trials and increase the number of participating teams, right? Yeah, the home hardware road to the roar will feature 14 teams of each gender. And it was initially going to be 12. Uh, but the fact that there were some really, really close uh, standings for those uh, 12, 13, and 14 spots made us decide that it might make more sense to just bring in those added teams with the added bonus, of course, that it gives those teams experience. And that's a huge factor. Uh, it's, it, they're younger teams, and they get a chance to taste that Olympic pressure. And, it, you know, it is Olympic pressure. It's already starting at the pre-trials, the road to the roar. So uh, that's a, it's, it's a real plus plus for everybody concerned those teams that thought maybe they wouldn't get a chance they will get a chance and that kind of experience will pay off for years and years to come those are the teams that we look towards uh potentially for 2022 and 2026 uh so that's where we're going with that decision and and we all know that the whole hardware road to the war does produce championship curling uh, last year last time around it was brad jacobs coming out of the pre-trials and then going on to win olympic gold so it's going to be an exciting event in summerside the other olympic trials that will be taking place this season will be for canada spotted the first ever mixed doubles event at the olympics for those that might be new to our audience i wanted to confirm that canada is one of the countries that has decided that curlers will be limited to one event at the 2018 olympics meaning that an athlete will not be able to qualify in both four person and mixed doubles that is correct yeah it's just it was it's going to be too tough and and you know all due respect to those other countries but uh you know having had a look at that schedule for the olympics it that would be a real burden i think on an athlete to have played both competitions because curling is the only competition at the uh the winter games that will be staged on every 
single day of the Olympics and in, will, in fact, start a day before the Olympics. It starts, mixed doubles will start on the Thursday, which means your practices will start on the Tuesday before opening ceremonies. That's almost three weeks of curling on ice every single day. And that's just two, we, you know, our high performance staff led by Jerry Peckham and, of course, Jeff Stoughton, uh, Paul Webster all concluded that that would be too much to ask, especially for a Canadian curler where the spotlight is just that much greater uh, on those athletes and the accompanying pressure. So yeah, it's understood. And it's actually in all the competitor guides that if you win at the Tim Hortons Roar of the Rings in Ottawa, you will not be competing at the uh, Olympic mixed doubles trials in Portage La Prairie, Manitoba in early January. So, but the great thing about that, of course, is the the teams that don't qualify at the Tim Hortons Roar of the Rings will still get another chance to get at the Olympics because there are avenues available to them through mixed doubles. As mentioned earlier, From the Hack will be presenting three exclusive series of features this season. Here, Shel Bernard introduces her Behind the Hack series. Hi, this is 2010 Olympic silver medalist and TSN curling analyst Cheryl Bernard. All my life, I've been fascinated with the mental side of sport. What allows a player to be clutch? Why do certain athletes stand out above the rest and are able to perform in high-pressure situations? These players prove that once you reach a certain level of competency, the mental game becomes more important and that the ability to master their mental skills matters most. The Behind the Hack series is about understanding the inner athlete, how athletes create their best performance on demand in must-win games under huge pressure. These players understand that the difference between an average performance and a peak performance begins with your state of mind. They also understand how to be comfortable when they're uncomfortable, how they play their best when there are nerves and distractions. We hope to glean from these champions how they get and stay in the zone, how they thrive on a team, how they build team communication and dynamics, how they prepare mentally, how they sustain excellence in the long term, how they recover from missed shots and heartbreaking losses, and what their thoughts were in big games and key moments from last season. So it is my hope that you enjoy these interviews as we look inside the champion's mind. The second episode of Behind the Hack with Cheryl Bernard and her guest, 2014 Olympic gold medalist Brad Jacobs, is now posted on iTunes and on the From the Hack website. Another new series for 2017-2018 on From the Hack is Next Steps with Kristen. Here is 2017 Canadian junior champion Kristen Streifel to tell us more about her new series of features. Hey everyone, my name is Kristen Streifel, skip of the 2017 Canadian Junior Women's Championship team. I'm really excited to let you all know that this season I will be doing my own interview series called Next Steps with Kristen. I'll be talking to athletes and coaches about their transitions from amateur to professional sport. Please stay tuned for some updates, including some of the guests that will be joining me this season on Next Steps with Kristen. This summer, the Curling Champions Tour of Europe and the World Curling Tour merged under the banner of the World Curling Tour. Jerry Gertz of the WCT joined me to discuss the merger and the positive impact it will have on curlers from around the world. Jerry, over the summer, it was announced that the World Curling Tour, based here in Canada, and the Curling Champions Tour, based in Switzerland, had merged. What were some of the challenges that both tours faced independently that you can now address as partners, and how will the merger benefit the players that competed on either or both tours in the past? Myself and uh, Armin Harder, who manages the uh, manage the uh, the Champions Tour, along with uh, his partner Joe Walkley, we've been talking about this for some time, and we've we've been working together 
uh, as organizations because the Champions Tour events in Europe specifically and, and the odd one in Asia uh, have been part of the World Curling Tour as, uh, over time. It, uh, it all goes back to, uh, I believe, like 2004, 05, 06, somewhere in that range when uh, – when Paul Boudelier and, and, and Armin kind of came to an agreement about how World Curling Tour Europe and uh, the World Curling Tour would work, and then they rebranded uh, WCT Europe into into the Champions Tour. And the guys over there have done a great job of building the business infrastructure behind the tour. And that is one of their strengths that really uh, uh, made you know, bringing everything together uh, perfect because uh, Armin and Joe are, are great at the business and, and, and working on, on funding and, and, and bringing in, in events in new markets. And whereas on my end, it's, uh, the World Curling Tour has definitely lacked some of that, that polish and business uh, savvy that, uh, that they've had. And it's kind of been struggling along for, for, for quite some time, unfortunately. And, and part of that is just uh, the amount of time I had to, to focus on that side of things. And, and, and my focus was mainly on recruiting events and managing the events that we have and, and, and keeping the tour running at a level where, where the teams had events to play. And uh, so scheduling for me was always a, always a challenge, and it's been January until uh, usually the 1st of May uh, moving, shuffling the deck, and moving, moving uh, pieces around to to fit everything in. So, at, at this point, you know, it, it was a pretty, it was a pretty easy uh, uh, set of meetings that we had, and we just went over a bunch of the details, and and we kind of came to an agreement on what uh, made the most sense behind the organization. So, the World Curling Tour brand is the is is the overall name of the organization. It'll be based out of Switzerland. And then from there, the, the Curling Champions uh, brand name will remain, and that's going to become majors uh, similar to Grand Slams. And, uh, again, that was probably one of our challenges was just sort of working uh, with uh, Sportsnet and the Grand Slam of Curling to make sure that, uh, you know, our goal is not to, to compete with uh, the Grand Slams. They're They've built a, a network of uh, really amazing events that the teams want to play, and the amount of coverage and sponsorship the teams get just from participating is is uh, even bigger than the, than the purses, to be honest. So, so it's, we, you know, it, it wouldn't be in anybody's best interest the teams, the the events, or anything to compete. But what we want to do is supplement those events in order to create a true professional tour for curling. Uh, right now, the teams uh, probably don't have enough events to, to make a full-time living of it. But then once, uh, you know, if they've got some opportunities to go play in, in uh, Japan and Korea, China, uh, Europe, Russia is another one that's uh, a growing uh, curling market as well. And, you know, now, now we're looking at opportunities to, to have the team's expenses covered and a purse to play for, like they played at the Arctic Cup in uh, Dudinka, Russia. Last season, events in North America outside of national championships were divided into Grand Slams and regular World Curling Tour events, while in Europe, there were Masters events and then Challenger events. Is the objective to turn some of the Masters events into Europe-based slams, or are you looking at creating new events that will serve as Europe's version of Grand Slams as you described it? 
The Masters events are uh, your your major World Curling Tour events right now. So you look at uh, you got the Perth Masters, the German Masters. That's where the term kind of comes from, and that's where uh, where they've they've laid that brand name. Challenger Series was a was a brand that Armin and I kind of came up with together. It comes from tennis. They they do it there as well, and uh, it it plays off of the. Uh, what we had is the World Curling Tour development tour in, in North America, which was uh, kind of that second tier of events. So now we're actually look essentially we're looking at three tiers of, uh, of the sport. You've got your, your Grand Slam slash Champions, Champions uh, Series, which are, you know, your elite kind of pro tour. And then you've got your Masters Series, which is going to be, which is going to encompass all of, uh, uh, the major Canadian events. You got a lot of them in Europe uh, as well already. And then the Challenger Series is, is your next tier. You know, you kind of consider them as your your regional tour type events. And now one of the other things we're trying to do is build build some of these smaller events in in the United States as well. With uh, with it, it's totally a true entry level. It's almost a fourth tier where. Uh, you know, you got St. Paul, you've got Duluth, you've got uh, a couple of events like that that are would, would be classified as challenger. They've been development tour events for some time, but now we're looking at Fort Wayne and Kalamazoo. We got one at the Dakota Curling Club in uh, Lakeville, Minnesota, and we're talking to places in the, uh, North Carolina on the East Coast. We're hoping to get something going in Denver and Arizona eventually. To, to create that true entry level event for the for the curlers to to get out of the clubs and compete and, and whether that's that's where you want to play and that's all you want to do that's great but it also gives the younger players you know the kids out of juniors who aren't quite good enough to latch on to established teams but can go out and play and compete and learn and then climb that ladder similar to what you would see in in baseball Earlier, you mentioned the possibility that some of the new major events being developed for outside of North America might be hosted in places such as China and South Korea. Is the Pacific Asia region an area of focus for this new version of the World Curling Tour? Well, the market is huge in Asia, and uh, TV numbers alone smash anything we can even imagine doing in, in Canada. Um, our biggest, I believe our biggest uh, TV uh, game was one of the Olympic uh, finals in Vancouver. I think they did somewhere in the neighborhood of 6 million, uh, 6 million viewers. When you go back and you look at, in 2013, December, they had the, uh, the Olympic qualifier in Fusen, Germany, and every game that China and Japan played, I think it worked out to something like 18 draws, they were broadcast back to, to the, those two nations. And the average for, for this was about 10 million per draw. They did somewhere in the neighborhood of 180, 178, 187 million total viewers over the course of the uh, duration of the event. And this was, you know, this wasn't an this wasn't even an Olympic event yet. Like it was the event to get into the Olympics. Now imagine what kind of numbers they can do during the Olympics if if those countries were into the final and and so on. So, you know, it, the the numbers are massive when you when you consider what you can get out of that and and you're you're seeing some of the provinces uh in china starting to uh to develop curling um the the hotbed of curling right now is is harbin which is up in the northeast 
northeastern part of uh, the country. But uh, they had an event in Shanghai uh, last season, and uh, they're running it again this year. You should look at where that is on a map. That's like cent- central western China, way inland, somewhere that I've never seen curling ever been mentioned or even a part of there. So, you know, this is another uh, new region that's trying to get involved in curling. You know, we, we look at the way they've developed the sport, and, you know, we've considered it uh, maybe not being the, you know, let's grow a bunch of athletes and create teams. At the end of the day, the way they are doing it is working. They're, you know, they've, they've sent their elite teams that they've paid to, to play, but now the sport is starting to backfill behind that, and, and uh, you know, the, the sky's the limit, to be honest, in China. And then, of course, Japan, we've made some inroads there. Uh, Hiroshi, uh, Hiroshi Kobayashi, he was a huge uh, proponent in getting the Asia-Pacific Tour going. And, and uh, you know, that's a big part of our partnership in, in Asia as well and in growing the game in Japan. And then, uh, and then of course, uh, you know, in Hokkaido, which is a North Island, Japan, we've got some people working there on building events. And uh, and then a great group of people in in uh Korea. We've made some great connections with the with the group out of Wisong, uh, and uh, you know he's worked. They've worked directly with Armin already with the Champions Series, and they did a, a major women's event in uh, March of uh, 2016, I believe. Yeah, it's been uh, the growth into Asia is really where the market is, and. And finally, Jerry, will the merger cause any changes in the way that the world ranking points are distributed at events around the world, or will it remain similar to what has been done over the past few years? Yeah, nothing is uh, is really changing there. One of the things we are going to be working on doing is, is creating a bit more separation between uh, the order of merit and uh, the country-specific uh, rankings, so like the CTRS, for example. That Canada isn't the only country that uses these points rankings for their uh, for a lot of the things that they do in their countries. Uh, so, so what they do is they, they kind of create a little bit of a separate system. It uses all the points and stuff uh, from the events, and then they calculate their own uh, national championships and and how they carry over points a little bit differently. Uh, the CTRS again for the same reasons. Uh, you know, they need to have some autonomy on how they how they control some of the events and so on. Like there's there's definitely some question marks about, you know, the one-offs like Jennifer Jones going to playoff play in, in Russia against those eight teams, seven teams, seven other teams. And, you know, how, how do we manage those points? How do we how do we do that and give proper value to those events on the order of merit, whereas where it doesn't overpower the CTRS system, for example? The most recent update, uh, Brennan Botcher was uh, was uh, big in helping uh, develop that. Uh, it's it's a bit more complex than I than it be than we'd like, but I think it fits the bill right now. And and the way things have filtered out, I think it's uh, it's doing the job of uh, properly identifying the top teams, but also giving teams outside of the the elite group the opportunity to climb the ladder really quickly with a successful season. 
The final new feature that we are introducing on From the Hack this season is the business of curling, where we will interview individuals that excel at the operational and business side of the sport and will share their expertise and best practices. This will include club management, event hosting, marketing for the 21st century, and tweaking the traditional business model so that clubs can survive in today's world. Our first guest will be Danny Lammerer, the Director of Curling Club Development and Championship Services for Curling Canada, and our interview with Danny will be posted later this week. Also this week, we will be posting the first of our monthly U.S. curling reports. This month, our guests include Olympic bronze medalist John Schuster, Phil Drobnik, a national coach for USA Curling, and Joe Calabrese, curling broadcaster and CEO of 12th and Sports. Seeing as how 2017-2018 is an Olympic season, we thought it would be interesting to bring together Shel Bernard, a 2010 Olympic silver medalist and a curling analyst for TSN, and Mike Harris, a 1998 Olympic silver medalist and a curling analyst for Sportsnet, for a discussion on what curling fans can expect this curling season. Cheryl, let's start with you. For just about all of the top teams, this season is the culmination of a four-year cycle where, at least in Canada, the focus has been on calling for the Olympic trials. Each of the top teams will be playing several events in the first part of the season, but is there a risk that so much focus is being put on the trials or pre-trials that teams may not be as focused for tour events or Grand Slams, which could see some of the teams coming into Summerside or Ottawa struggling to find their game? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. It's it's a, it's a trick for a lot of teams. You're going out there um, and you're trying not to think ahead to December 2nd or to November if you're in the pre-trials. And, you know, I think what has happened more over the years is you see a lot of these teams using the mental side of the game and they're trying to focus just on what's in front of them. It's kind of one shot at a time. It's one event at a time. Those are the key things that these teams are trying to do. Now, easier said than done. Uh, you know, I talked to Brad Jacobs the other day and he said for this year, for them, they're going to use the events leading up to the trials as kind of mini dress rehearsals. So they're going to go out, they're going to do their pre-shot, their pre-game, their post-game and try and have some success doing exactly what they're going to do at those Olympic trials. So, you know, I think for the strong teams mentally, they're going to not look up far ahead um you know maybe when you're you get some rest between events you're going to think about it that's okay but then you got to bring it back to what you need to do now or you're never going to make it through the first half of the trial mike the sport of curling has evolved a lot since you won the olympic trials in 1997 as someone that follows the sport closely in your role as an analyst for sportsnet i'm wondering if you can take a few moments to compare the process and build up your team went through in 1997 to what the top teams go through today when it comes to the build-up for the trials and the pressure that comes with it. Well, uh, way back then, yeah, thanks, Frank. That was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think the biggest, the biggest change is, I think, how, how much other uh, knowledge the teams are applying to their, their, their process. I mean, Cheryl curled back then, as well, and, and she, she can attest to the fact that we did, things were just different. But uh, when it comes to the preparation and, and all that stuff going into the trials i don't I mean I, I can't i wouldn't say that it was any any different i mean we we weren't sure what because we were kind of a, an inexperienced team we weren't really sure what to expect when we got to the trial so we just tried to make sure that when we went there we were fresh and getting on a roll and that type of stuff and how we got there was far less scientific than it is now if that makes any sense uh like cheryl saying like brad's team is going to be doing dress rehearsal. I, I know that they they found a little something special going into the trials last time around and then they stuck to this uh the same game plan when they were in sochi so i think what they need to do is try to find and not just them that what what works for them won't necessarily work for another team 
So they, I think each team is, is trying to find that magic formula and, and understand what allows them to bring out their best. And, and uh, you know, I think uh, at the end of the day, it's going to change from team to team. Um, some of the teams, it really depends how you look at it. I mean, teams like Brad Jacobs, Jennifer Jones, they, they, if they don't approach it the right way, they could feel that added pressure where teams like, you know, the, the lesser knowns, the shy diggers, and, and, you know, any of the men team that kind of kick their way through the pre-trials, uh, I would say that the pressure might be lessened a little bit. You know, they can kind of fly in under the radar a little bit. So I think it's just going to be up to the teams to figure out what the best process is. And, and if they apply that early pressure, if they put pressure on themselves to do, perform well at every event, that's just not going to uh, be feasible. And not you won't be able to carry that type of, uh, you, you wouldn't want to carry that type of burden with you all season long. So I think you really want to try to figure a way to kind of try to peak at the right time and get yourself going in on a roll into the trials and, and uh, you know, use the first start of this, the first few events in the season just to kind of uh, experiment with a few different techniques, uh, you know, beyond beyond the throwing and, and, and playing and sweeping and all that sort of stuff, just trying to figure out what to do off the ice to kind of make sure you're ready. Mike, typically in the third year of an Olympic cycle, you have established teams that come into their own or newer teams composed of experienced players having an impact in the lead-up to the Olympic season. But in 2016-17, several women's teams, such as Team Flaxi, Team Scheidegger, Team Moiseva of Russia, and Team Hasselberg of Sweden, made a charge up the world rankings, often as a result of strong play in the slams, or in Moiseva's case, by winning the European Championship. Have you ever seen so many teams rise in the rankings so late in an Olympic cycle? All of those teams you, you mentioned are, you're right, they all, they all I don't know if they improved dramatically or just really found a way to get into the slams and started performing well. But I, particularly on the women's side, I think there's, there was certainly, uh, there's no real domination going on there other than Rachel Holman. Uh, you know, even Jennifer Jones, a little streakier than she used to be a few years ago. Uh, but there certainly was an opportunity for, for quite a few teams to kind of step up. And, and uh, it's, you know, the old field added. I think, you know, it's certainly in the case of Allison Flaxley's team. You know, they, they work really hard. Uh, they, they do all the right things. They've got, you know, coaches. And Caleb works hard with them, who coaches Brad Jacobs as well. Uh, they, they're using uh, all the resources available to them through Curling Canada. As as do a lot of the other teams out there. So I think I think uh, if you're willing to work hard at it, and certainly uh, all those teams you mentioned do work very hard at it. Uh, you know, I know that uh, Carolyn McMorris working with uh, Scheidegger. So I mean, they talked to me a little bit this summer about trying to find a, a sports psychologist who could help them out. And and you know, everyone they're all doing the right thing. And uh, talent goes a long way. I think Scheidegger is probably one of the most talented teams I've seen. They're they're really solid, top to bottom. So yeah, there's going to be an opportunity for someone to break through this year. But yeah, to, to answer your question, I guess have I seen it before? Yeah, there's always been teams. But Brad J, we never even talked about Brad Jacobs leading into Sochi. It was all Howard Martin. Stout, no one even McEwen. You know, all these teams. Don't forget Brad Jacobs was in the pre-trials uh, going into the uh, the Sochi the, the trials leading into Sochi. So. He wasn't even part of the equation, right? So there, there's certainly an opportunity for some teams to move their way up the rankings for sure. And if they're doing the right things and they're practicing hard and, and uh, you know, I think it's, it, it would be a bit of a surprise, I think, to see any of the men's teams jump out of the pre-trials and make their way to the Olympics like it happened last time. But it wasn't only, it wasn't only Jacobs. It was also John Morris. The two teams out of the pre-trials ended up in the final 
of the uh, of the Olympic trials. So uh, yeah, I think the opportunity is certainly there. Um, but if, if the resources available to the teams are so much greater now, but I, I'm, I'm looking forward to find see if somebody can challenge Rachel Holman on the women's side. But uh, they're, they're, they they seem to be quite a quite a ways ahead of uh, most of the other teams when it comes to all those factors, you know, talent and working hard at it. And you know, you look at the fitness levels on that team, uh, you know, with Joanne particularly at second sweeping. So, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's great for the game and. Uh, it happens every once in a while, but uh, certainly there seem to be more teams last year jumping up. Cheryl, the reality is that teams like Scheidegger, Flaxey, and Hasselberg on the women's side, along with Kyle Smith of Scotland and Team Wallstad of Norway on the men's side, will not be able to sneak up on teams the way they did last season. What's the key for those teams that are coming off breakthrough seasons to maintain their level of play and respond to the added pressure they will feel to follow up on last season's successes? Well, yeah, no, I think that's what makes the the champions and the top teams so great. It is really hard. You can fly under the radar for a year. People don't really pay attention to you. And then when you have that success in a year, usually teams suddenly, when they break through, they then sit down in the off season and they realize that in order to maintain that and to sustain what they've done, what do they have to do? And so sometimes you see them do some strategic uh, changes or tactical changes, player changes, and they all kind of come as a result of getting to the top and playing against the best and saying, well, we have some deficiencies. In order for us to stay there and to be at the top with the top 10, we're going to have to do this and this and this because now you've played with them, you've run with the big dogs, and you kind of know, hey, you know, we're going to have to improve and work on some things. So I think what happens a lot of times you'll see – those teams slide back a bit. It's it's the process of improvement. You're going to slide back for a season, and then you'll probably see them surge ahead the next year. Not all of them, but I do feel like, you know, teams, they play Jones or they play Holman is the perfect example, as Mike alluded to. You play Holman and realize, you know, in order to beat Holman, what are we going to have to do? And that's when you start maybe looking at player changes or weaknesses in your strategy, all those kind of things. Fitness level, you look at Joanne and think, yeah, I mean, we've got a long way to go to be anywhere near that. And they set the bar so high. Uh, so you, you may see some of these teams slide back a little bit, and then the next year they come out even stronger. Speaking of flying under the radar, Shell, there are a few teams that are coming off seasons where they may have struggled but still have the talent to make noise in major events. Are there any teams that might be quote-unquote under the radar going into this season that you believe could cause surprises in 2017-18, perhaps even at a pre-trials or trials? Yeah, I mean, there's going to always be those teams. I, I even look at the teams that probably weren't happy with that are in the trials, that weren't happy. I look at a Jones or a Sweeting, uh, McEwen, Carruthers. They didn't get out of their province, some of them. So I think those teams are even, it could be an advantage. Maybe they got to go back and say, okay, what have we done? Are we putting too much pressure on ourselves? Or did we just need a year where we got hungry? You know, sometimes that happens with the team. You have kind of a subpar year. Uh, a couple of years before you've done well, your expectations were up. Maybe you let things slide a little bit. It's kind of the tendency. Everybody talks about complacency on teams and, So I think it is a real advantage for a team like maybe a Jones or a McEwen or Sweeting to not have had the best year last year because that drives you for this year and you can see some good things from those teams just because of it. My team Gushu and team Holman are coming off great seasons that saw both win a Canadian and a world championship. 
How difficult will it be for both these teams to follow up on last season with all the added distractions and demands that come with being a Canadian and world champion? Well, I think both teams actually, uh, you know, you say they had great years. I would uh, argue a little bit that, especially for home. And I mean, I think she had a better year the year before. She won just about everything she went in except for the provincial. She lost, <laughs> she ended up losing the final to, uh, to Jen Hanna. Uh, but last year she really didn't win any. She hardly won a slam until the end of the season, and then and then kind of won for that for me because they focused on provincial. They wanted they didn't want that to happen again, where they uh, they go to they kind of win everything they play in, and then all of a sudden they get to provincials and don't do well. So they, they really had a, a chip on their shoulder about the provincials and the Scotties. They you know once once they kind of got there, they kind of got on that roll. Uh, but that's again what Cheryl said. I mean, what what makes them so great is they're so talented and they're so good. I mean that team is. You could argue that at every position they're the best. So, um, and similar to Brad Gushu's team, I think I think their team went through so much adversity last year. By the time Brad came back, it was such a relief. Uh, but I think everyone was so impressed with how that team played without Brad, and maybe even Brad learned to appreciate a little bit <laughs> more his guys and how good they actually were. I thought uh, Brett Galland in particular was unbelievable. Mario, everyone talked about Mark at. Uh, skipping and that was certainly was a fantastic performance as well but Brett was so impressive how he he kind of led the team from the front end position and, and made sure that they were doing all the right things and and when Brad came back he seemed a lot more open to discussion with uh with the guys so um you know that's kind of a tale of two different stories for those two teams but the, at the bottom at the end of the day they're the most talented they work the hardest their best sweepers, you know, you look at uh, Jeff Walker and Brett Gallant are unbelievable sweepers, and they're true teams. They've been together so long now, uh, the core of that of both of those teams, that even on their bad day, they're better than most. So the real challenge for them is going to be trying to find that way to peak at the right time. They can be beaten. We've seen it, like you said, a, a team like Allison Flaxy or Scheidegger, they want to slam. So this all they know that they can win on occasion. Um, Holman's team will be there at the end of the week. I, you know, Gushu's team will be there at the end of the week. Um, I, you know, I'd be surprised if that didn't happen. The only, the only thing that could get them going the wrong direction is, is if they put too much pressure on themselves to get to the Olympics where they fall flat. And we've seen that happen a couple of times over the years. When you think back to, especially the 06, when Brad Gushu won those trials, you know, it was all about Furby and Martin and, and uh, those two teams in particular, and, and there was so much pressure that they had applied on themselves that they kind of just, you know, they, just did, they weren't able to perform. So I think the, the biggest challenge for Holman and Gushu in particular is just going to be trying to figure out a way to, to uh, maintain that level of, of uh, keeping it keeping it light, if that makes any sense. So Cheryl, not that either Team Gushu or Team Holman was ever going to fly under the radar to begin with, but from your experience following the 2010 Olympics, do teams that win an Olympic medal or a world championship have a bigger target on their backs, and do you get a sense that teams will be even more motivated to perform well when facing a Team Gushu or Team Holman this season? That's exactly, and Mark Kennedy and I actually talked about that, that the year after, it was, it was a bit of a shock because teams come out to play you and teams that I'd played over and over for years, and all of a sudden they've upped their game 15%, and I think it's because they want to walk away off that sheet of ice and say, you know, we just beat an Olympian. And, and so I think you have to really realize that teams are going to come out, and it gets exhausting because teams are coming out, they're coming at you, they're prepping for that single game sometimes in a day 
Whereas you are in a little bit of a different state, you're, you know, you're burnt out from the Olympics, you're burnt out from media. Those are the kind of things that I think both Holman and Gushu are going to have to manage in a pretty short period of time. They haven't had a lot of recovery time from their worlds. It was a whirlwind year for both of them. You know that you have commitments to sponsors and and to media and different things when you're done. And then to try to kind of close that door and start with, okay, what's our first event of the year? What's our focus? You know, it's this tough for these teams. And I think it's the biggest difficulty. and, And I think Mike can agree with this as well. The biggest thing is you go for four years focused, focused on the Olympics, focused on getting to the trials, chasing the points, doing everything you can. Then you get to the trials and you're supposed to now go out there. And this is what you need to do is mentally relax, have some perspective and just enjoy the ride. And, you know, but you focused on everything in your curling career for this one event. And that's where I think, and as Mike had pointed out too, where you see teams, favorites don't always come through because they either mentally can't handle that pressure or they haven't learned really how to deal with it. So, you know, I think it's different. I look at uh, the, the white noise that Gushu and Holman will have to deal with But I think what's changed over the years is they now have bigger teams around them that kind of filter all that noise for them. So they've got people handling media. They kind of, you know, sequester themselves away leading up to the events. They only do what they have to do. They have to get all their ducks in a row, which would be their work commitments, their family commitments. They have to go into the year prepared and not just physically, mentally, technically, but also their personal lives. They have to be in the best position, and then they've just got to let it all happen. And that's the trick, is to just have fun at those trials. Whereas Team Holman and Team Gushu ended the season on a very positive note, there were a few teams last season that struggled. Two of those teams were Team Carey, coming off their victory at the 2016 Scotties, and Team McEwen, who were coming off their first Briar appearance, and have been one of the top men's teams in the world for years now. Mike, both Team Carey and Team McEwen have talent throughout their lineup, but what must they do over the first few months of the season to ensure that they enter the Olympic trials in a headspace that will allow them to offer a peak performance despite their struggles for parts of last season well i think they're two different two very different teams first of all i think uh mike McEwen for the last 10 years has been one of the top three teams on the money list and and you know you could argue top five in the world for a long time they were they've been very close to splitting up the last couple couple years but they you know managed to win manitoba they end up going on to the briar and having some success there and if you recall this year, they had that uh, playoff game one against Cooey, and they had a mental mistake in the eighth end that cost them, cost really cost them the game. So they're a very different team than 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 Chelsea Carey in that sense. I think just their consistency over the last ten years. It would surprise no one if they end up winning the, the trials. How they get there, that's 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 the challenge for those guys. I mean, as they've been through through so much together uh, over these last uh, 10, 10, 11 years. It's one. They're they're one of those teams. You kind of think, you know what? They're they're due to win something big, and I think no one would begrudge them winning. Where you know, again, then you talk about Chelsea Carey's team. That team's been kind of up and down, and and uh, they've never been a real consistent cash team. They've had their moments out there winning events, but that was kind of one of those events where they win Alberta and then they get hot and win the win the Scotties, and then it's been up and down since then for them as well. So, and they've got a new player on board now, right? They've got a new third. Uh, Kathy O is going to be jump, jump, jumping on that team, and I don't think that's going to hurt them in any manner. She's bringing so much experience to that team. Uh, that may help them a lot. But 
what what they have to do is take take uh, some uh, comfort in the fact that Chelsea knows that she's been able to get it done before, and that's a, that's a team that just kind of again you they're going to be trying to figure out a way to kind of peak at that right time, get things going at the trials, and I think Kathy Oak can help her a lot, um, basically managing the game, uh, helping her. Uh, you know, she's such a calming influence out on the ice, Kathy is, and. And I think that, that that will help her a great deal out there. Um, you know, nothing, I don't think there's any real improvement shot-making-wise from Amy. When Amy played well, she was great. But, um, you know, certainly from, a, you know, when things weren't going well, that team, there was some volatility there. And I hope, I'm, I'm hopeful for that team that they are able to gel early. And if they have a little bit of success at the start of the season, I think they could be very tough at the trials. But it's, it's kind of a wait-and-see with that team where, as I said, with, with McEwen, I think uh, – they're, they're due to win something huge. The question is for them, can they get through that start of the season? I don't think even if they have a poor start to the season, it will necessarily take them into the Olympic trials with a, with a terrible mindset. I think they, they understand. They've been through so much over the last 10 years that they, they know that they can get it going at the right time. Um, they, can, they can do it. So uh, two different stories, but I think two different routes to, to getting uh, – success at the trials. Before letting both of you go, I thought we'd do a quick fire round where I mentioned the name of a team and you tell me what you expect from them this season. Cheryl, let's start with you and with Team Kevin Cooey. What are you expecting from them this season? Well, I, I think just because of the desire they have, this team was created for these trials. Um, last year was an unusual year. Nobody was beating Brad Gushu, so I think for them, you're going to see them in the trials final, and then it's a final and anything can happen. How about Team Jacobs, the reigning Olympic champions? What do you expect from them this season, Mike? Well, they're they're uh, kind of a uh, an enigma, a little bit of an enigma. You know, they they can be really good and they can be really bad. But I know they're um, well, and really bad's an exaggeration. They don't they don't get that bad. But <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> they they really changed the the way their their outlook on things. I talked to Ryan Fry last year, and they were trying to change things up with the way they operate so that teams aren't expecting them to play the same way they used to play. So, you know, I know it's, it's all in theory, but, uh, you know, they're, they're a team that is so tough, so competitive, that, you know, they, they will not be unprepared going to those Olympic trials, put it that way. And, and uh, you know, if they're, you're not going to beat them by, by, by luck. You have to really earn it when you play those guys. And, and uh, yeah, they're going to be really tough. The men's, they said the men's field, you've got five legitimate contenders, in my opinion, and they're certainly one of them. Cheryl, how about Team Laycock, who made a significant addition to the team late last season by adding Matt Dunstone at second? Yeah, you know, I think that's a great move, having Matt move in at second. And those changes, like we've talked about, they can add spark to a team. And this is a team that will fly under the radar at those trials. They're not one of the top, you know, favorite teams, but they know they're one of the – they're a very, very good team. And they could come out there – and win any of those games and be in the final as well. And I think now you've got Matt, who's got some fire, and he's got that experience, and so that could be a big, huge addition to their team. Mike, let's go back to a team you mentioned briefly a little earlier. What are you expecting from the reigning women's Olympic champions, Team Jones? No one's more experienced than than Jennifer, and and under pressure, Jennifer does not crack. I mean, everyone knows that. It it really is going to come down to how her team plays in front of her, I think. I think... uh, but she's the type of player that can just decide to go on a roll and then do it herself <laughs> if she's not getting cooperation from her teammates. But, I, you know, you look what Dawn and Jill have done uh, over the last two years in terms of just getting fitter and stronger and, 
um, that team's not getting uh, any less motivated in my eyes. I think they're just as motivated as they ever were. Um, and, you know, they, they've got their eyes on the prize. So um, once you get to those trials, you know, again, because Jennifer's so strong strategically, she just doesn't miss a draw under pressure. Those, those two qualities alone, we're going to take that team to a lot of wins. And, and uh, we've seen it before where she just decides to get on a roll and, and that's that. And uh, she's almost impossible to beat. So, But I think in order for them to, to beat Holman, kind of call it on a, I just use Rachel as kind of the, the bar here, to beat Holman on a consistent basis, all four players are going to have to play pretty well, uh, you know, very well. And, and uh, Jen's probably the single most accomplished player in history of the women's game right now, and, and uh, she deserves every accolade we can give her. So I, I, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see her do really well again. Outside of Team Adine from Sweden, Team Muirhead is the one non-Canadian team that many will have their eyes on this season. Cheryl, what are you expecting from Team Muirhead this season after what, by their standards, was a bit of an inconsistent 2016-17 season? Well, they're always, it's kind of watching Team Muirhead. I've always felt that kind of the way the team goes is how Anna goes is how the team goes, basically. So, you know, if Anna gets on a streak and a roll, that team is hard to beat. Uh, they've got the advantage there directly uh, into the Olympics, so they get to represent their country. Uh, they get to focus on that solely going forward. Um, that can be good or bad. But they're going to play on tour this season and try to hone some things with their team. And Anna, in her defense, was away. She had injuries last year, came back halfway through the season, played very well at the last half of the season. So, you know, I, I think that really bodes well for them going forward. And they've been to an Olympics before. That, that in itself is a massive advantage just to be able to get back. The last team I want to cover in the quickfire mic is Team Sweden. Not unlike Team McEwen, they've been successful on tour, always seem to make it deep when they are at a major event, but have yet to score that signature victory such as a Scotties or an Olympic Trials. Could they be another team that is due for a big win, and could that breakthrough come at the Olympic Trials this season? Yeah, exactly, and I, I don't think it would surprise anybody. Val's a, Val is a great skip. I mean, I, there's no way, no other way to say it. She's just smart. She uh, seems to perform well under pressure. Um, and in much much like East team, where Anna is kind of that that uh, the streakier of the players on that team, I think you could say the same for Lori Olson Johns. When Lori plays well, it makes uh, Val's life so much easier. And uh, you know, as Cheryl and I kind of said, we're both skips. We know that when our team plays well, we just like throwing guards and free draws for three, uh, don't we, yeah, Cheryl? But uh, <laughs> at the end, at the end of the day, yeah, just uh, at the end of the day, if 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 their thirds play well, like I said, if Anna can play well and and Lori can play well. I think they're going to have uh, a great run because you've got two skips there who really know their stuff. And, and uh, it's said Val, Val's just so cool. And, and I'm, I'm a big fan of that team. And, and I, I, I said, it would surprise, like you said, it would surprise no one if they, if they finally, finally broke through and won the trials. Invariably during Olympic seasons, there are several announcements of teams breaking up and other teams forming for the next Olympic cycle. Cheryl, when does the process of planning for the next cycle start for players? What might be happening behind the scenes this season as players start looking to 2022, uh, even though this current Olympic cycle is not yet over? Well, it, it, you know, and I think that question, there's two ways to look at it. I think there are some players, and, and we're probably all aware of them, that are probably going to retire after this season. So I would definitely guess that the players on those teams have already started talking to somebody. It's just really a matter of survival, and I'm sure there's some conversations going on um, in that respect. And then I think for the top three teams on the men's and ladies' side that are kind of the favorites at the trials, 
I, I would guess there probably hasn't been much discussion at all, just out of respect for the, their opportunities. And, and you never want to harm that, that chance by having something like that come out. I would say, though, for the teams below that, the conversations have already started, and whether it be because a player is retiring or this combination isn't exactly what you want or you've looked at the top and said, this team isn't going to get it. We, we got ourselves to the trials, but we're not going to win it, so we need to do this, and so I want to align myself with a different group next year. So you know um, I can speak to the fact that the – you know, the few last few Olympic cycles I played, teams were already tra- talking. That is just kind of part of the sport. You just hope, and, and I think most of these players, there's enough respect um, amongst the players that they don't do it and they don't want to harm their teammates and, and hopefully wait till it's over. So, you know, I, I think there's going to be some great combinations that come out from this and people are going to be talking and kind of getting ready for that next cycle. Mike, there has got to be some players that will receive a lot of phone calls when the teams are restructuring for the next cycle. One example might be Kate Cameron of Team Englod, who opened a lot of eyes during the Scotties. I'm not trying to suggest that Michelle Englod is planning on retiring, but if she did, Kate Cameron would be one of many young players in the country that would get a lot of attention, right? I mean, it, it, as, as Cheryl said, the discussions have already started. Um, and I'm, I'm not con- as, as convinced as you are that Michelle won't continue playing for a couple more years, especially if they have some success. Um, you know, she's all, I don't know how old Michelle is. I mean, it's kind of like, uh, I think she's early 50s and playing as well as she ever has. Uh, you know, it, it, will she retire? I don't know. But when you look at players like Kate or, you know, you look at younger teams, like all of the Dunstone guys that came out. So Matt Dunstone, I can't expect him to play second for Steve Laycock for the rest of his career. Um, you know, the Eppings team is a, is a prime team. If they don't have some success, what's going to happen with that team? You've got... Scott Howard and uh, Dave Mathers uh, playing front end for Glenn. You've got all kinds. There's all kinds of players, I can tell you right now, who are definitely looking around. But it's it's a whole four year commitment now that is. And 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 Cheryl and I, when we started curling, that that really wasn't part of the the, the, the math. You didn't do the math based on four year cycles. You just kind of, uh, you know, you put the feelers out towards the end of the season. But we've seen it happen. Um, mid-season almost. You know, you look at when Pat Simmons won the Briar for that. Uh, yeah, Cooey and Simmons and those guys all won the Briar the first time, and the discussions had already happened. By the time that team went to the world, the team was split up. Um, so it's not unprecedented, but I, I think to Cheryl's point, the Olympics are, are different than the Scotties or the Briar in the players' minds now. It's, it's all about the Olympic trials. They won't do a whole lot of formal discussion until the trials but once the trials hit you know midweek you've got half the teams are out they're already talking about next year i can guarantee you um and the top teams that are still in the playoffs you don't really bug them until them until they're out but uh whoever wins you can expect them to be together for another few years but everyone else is basically in the mix and and uh yeah i mean it's not a secret i mean these the teams are they're not restricted uh, regionally anymore. Basically, if you live in Canada, they're going to they're gonna find a way to play together. So it, it, the, the, the rules have changed when it comes to all that sort of stuff. But uh, like as Cheryl said, the, the feelers have already been laid out for, for next four-year cycle. And uh, the younger teams especially are, are definitely looking. And, and again, it's, it's hard. It's, you know, it's, it's got to be uh, exciting for when they see teams like Flaxy and Scheidegger do so well kind of out of nowhere and like Flaxy comes out of nowhere and makes it directly into the trials as did Scheidegger so when those two when you see two teams who just have one year of success together and how far they can come up the rankings 
you know, the sky's the limit for any of these teams. What you really need, though, is to find four like-minded individuals. And finally, Cheryl and Mike, there are only two men's and two women's teams that competed in the 2013 Canadian Olympic trials that still have the same lineup. How many of the teams that have already qualified for the Canadian trials do you expect to still be together at this time next season? If, if they win or don't win. <laughs> well, if they win, well, there's only one that's, going to, win, win, right? only one top, that's going to win. Uh, assume the top two teams who win are going to stick together. And if uh, these, if the other teams don't win, the only team I expect on the men's side to stick together, I would say Gushu and uh, Jacobs. The only two teams I would expect to see intact next year. I don't want the women's yeah, side on the women's side. Sure. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm thinking two on each side. I think it's going to be the two in the final. You've got uh, – you know, you, you've got Scheidegger's team that's working. They may stick together just because they've just had that success. But I, I think the two teams in the final, they'll probably stick together. You might only get two women's teams as well. And, you know, I think further to Mike's point, you talk about Michelle and the reason you might surmise that she would retire was because of age. But age has actually got little to do with it anymore because what's happened is I think that, and, and Mike and I can have played through the difference in this where, it wasn't your life. You had a career. You could have a family. You could curl. You could go to a Scotty's, a Briar. You could play through the Olympics. Now what's happened is the commitment is so massive for these players that I think you're going to start seeing some players at a lot younger age, like in their 40s, that have been through the cycle two or three times, and they're going to be done. Hang it up because they've put so much on the line. They've put careers on the line. Their family has put up with their schedule. They're gone all winter. The money's not as good. I mean, really, the money is only good for the top 1% of the teams. We're not talking NHL money here. So really hard so to justify the person that's gone down, Frank, over the years, right? I mean, you think of it, Cheryl, but yeah. 20 years ago we were playing for – like, remember, the Hunter Spiels were 40000 to win. This is back yep. 20 years ago, and now you win a slam at 25. So everyone knows oh, the money's so great. It's not really. It's, the money is in the endorsements and the jack, you know, what you're selling right. your sponsorship for. But there's no money for winning curling games anymore. Not any more than there used to be. But the other part, too, Cheryl, sorry to interrupt, but it's also physically how much you have to play. Like when, when we went to the trials at way back 20 years ago, and we would play eight spiels a year. But now they play 15 spiels, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's hard on your system, hard on your family, hard on your careers, everything, because they're playing so much more than Brian, And Brad Dushu physically, he, he hurt himself because he threw too many rocks. Like he's physically worn out. Richard Hart, I... I I play golf with Richard quite a bit. He's actually going to not play the first two or three fields this year because his knee is, from all those years of throwing, after I, after we stopped playing together back in 2000, you know, he ended up throwing ten times as many rocks with Glenn as he did with our team. And, and he's, just, he's now bone on bone on his knees, and he just can't, he just can't do it anymore. So um, he's going to take the first three fields off and then try to get hot for the pre-trials, right? So... Physically, it's just really, really hard to play that many events now. So, and I think that's becoming a, you know, we see the injuries now, shoulders and, and uh, you know, we saw a few of the sweepers at the Briar this year were, were quite badly injured, Jeff Walker in particular. So this is not a, 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 an unusual thing for, for teams just to be worn out. But uh, you're right, it's not, it's not only age that's going to cause you to retire, it's all that other stuff as well, Cheryl. And that does it for the first From the Hack podcast of the 2017-2018 curling season. Join us next week for the second half of our season's preview, when our focus will shift to Europe and Pacific Asia, including interviews with David Murdoch of Scotland, Sylvana Turnzoni of Switzerland, and Peter Gallant, who is currently coaching in South Korea. We'll also recap the Everest Curling Challenge and preview the Baden Masters and the Stu Cells Oakville.
Don't forget to like our From the Hack Facebook page where you will find the regional installments of Fresh Pebble and follow us on Twitter at From the Hack.